It seemed that before the final divorce decree was entered, there was a, a draft order that was prepared, I, I believe, maybe by counsel for the appellee, and the husband here made some objections to that draft order. And it seems that some of the objections he raised are the same issues that are now percolating before us. So it's, it, as I understand it, he objected and basically said, oh, wait, no, the court didn't say specific dollar amounts. We shouldn't have specific dollar amounts in the order. Instead, it should say 55-45, and the dollar amount shouldn't be there. And that, that the court's order was vague about what happens if there is this exact situation where there's an excess. Welcome to the Court of Appeals of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law a personal injury and long-term disability law firm with headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia. Listening to oral arguments is one of the best ways to both learn and stay abreast of the substantive and procedural aspects of practicing law in Virginia. By putting these public domain recordings into the form of a podcast, Ben Glass Law has made it easy for the public to access these recordings. All commentary that is not part of the actual court proceedings is that of the show sponsor. Next case will be Samuel Murphy versus Billy Murphy. <coughs> the appellant has waived oral argument in this case, and we have Ms. Kreitzer on behalf of the appellee. Kreitzer or Kreitzer? I apologize. The T is silent. That's okay. It's Kreitzer. Okay. Kreitzer. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Kreitzer, you can proceed whenever you're ready. Thank you, and good morning, Your Honors. <clears throat> My name is Jacqueline Kreitzer, and I represent Billy Murphy, the appellee in this case. This matter is before the court on an appeal from the circuit court's declaratory judgment issued in favor of Ms. Murphy. The underlying issue was whether the circuit court reasonably interpreted the final divorce decree as having equitably distributed the marital residence. This court should have formed the trial court's judgment in favor of Ms. Murphy for two reasons. First, the trial court reasonably interpreted the final divorce decree as having equitably distributed the marital residence. And second, because the duties assigned to Ms. Murphy in the final divorce decree are pertinent to the transfer of property in 20-107.3. In Fox v. Fox, this court laid out a roadmap on how to equitably distribute marital property. It coincides with 20-107.3, Section A. And the first thing the court must do is classify the property. Then it values the property. Then the court equitably distributes the property. The trial court reviewed the final divorce decree in this case and found that in the final divorce decree, the divorce court classified the property. This is the marital residence considered at marital. The divorce court then valued the marital residence at $405,000 as of the date of the evidentiary hearing. The court then noted that there was a debt associated with the marital residence that the court classified as marital and then deducted that from the value, the $405,000, and ultimately determined that the equity there left over was also marital and then equitably distributed the equity to the parties. The final divorce decree distributed 55% of the equity, specifically stating that wife was to receive $105,678 and then to husband 45%, which was $72,573. Can I ask you on that? And I think I know the answer, but that's not 45 and 55. You did the calculation of that total. You get like 40 point certain percent, between 40 and 41% for the husband and between 59 and 60% for wife. That's true, Judge. And if you take a look in the final divorce decree, it's at the record, I believe it's page 15 or 16 at the record, where the final divorce decree added and subtracted and equalized some of the other marital assets in that calculation and then determined that the final numbers were these numbers. I thought it had something to do with deduction for 
expenses for lawn care and certain things like that that had not been paid by husband and so that was deducted from his share. But there, that's correct. There were some things deducted from his share. Also part of this was paragraph five. The marital residence was addressed in paragraph five of the final divorce decree. But in paragraphs three and four, the divorce court talked about a rental property and that there would be offsets for wife's interest in the rental property and there were just other offsets that were calculated. You, that, you do get 55% Correct. That's correct. It seems to me what the, there's two possibilities here. One is that what the court did in its order, what it valued, as you pointed out, that the court did all three of the things it was required to do. It just was way off on the valuation, it sounds, or else the property appreciated in a very short period of time following the valuation. But either way, either the order could be interpreted as awarding a fixed amount to the husband with any excess or deficiency uh, to according to the wife, or the court did, didn't do anything with respect to a possible deficiency or appreciation and, and instead distributed the, the excess value of the house when it sold independently of the original order. Now, if it's the former, then it seems to me we're going through an exercise of whether the, the court can interpret its own order and whether its interpretation was correct. And if it's the latter, then the it seems to me the issue is, okay, did the court have the authority to, dis to independently distribute the excess the way it did? And, of course, as you well know, the court has a lot of latitude in doing that. That's so it right. seems to me either way you've got a pretty uphill battle here, don't you? Judge, I, with all due respect, I think there's a third analysis okay. to take a look at, and that's because 20-107.3 subsection C confers upon the circuit court the option to transfer property one of three ways. The court can order the transfer from one party to the other. The court can permit the purchase of the interest in the party by one party or the other, so long as the purchasing party also assumes the debt associated with that property. Or three, it can order the sale of the property. If our analysis stopped with the first point, I think, I think you're right, Judge. But I think we have to look further because as the trial court pointed out, the final divorce decree didn't stop there. It did take additional steps. It ordered that Ms. Murphy was to sell the property. Ms. Murphy was to hold Mr. Murphy harmless for the debt associated. So she was to take on the entire amount of the debt pending the sale. She was, so she's ordered to sell the property. She's ordered to pay Mr. Murphy his interest in the property. And she, he, she was ordered to assume the debt associated with the property. Those are directly out of 20-107.3 subsection C, which go with the transfer of property. It is not a wild inference. It seems like a reasonable inference there. That property was then her responsibility. And that's what the trial court indicated, that it became her responsibility to, to fulfill the mandates or the orders in the final divorce decree. And once she did that, the, the balance, whether it was an excess or a deficit, came to her. The trial court further reasoned uh, with the parties while they were arguing that what would have happened if there had been a deficit? What if the property sold for less money? Wouldn't Miss Murphy still owe Mr. Murphy the same amount of money that she was ordered to pay him in the final divorce decree? <coughs> Certainly. There's no indication that she wouldn't owe him that money. And he conceded as much. Is that correct? That's correct. And I, I want on that point, I'm curious. I want to make sure I understand all what happened below. It seemed that before the final divorce decree was entered, there was a, a draft order that was prepared, I, I believe, maybe by counsel for the appellee. And the husband here made some objections to that draft order. 
And it seems that some of the objections he raised are the same issues that are now percolating before us. So it's, it, as I understand it, he objected and basically said, oh, wait, no, the court didn't say specific dollar amounts. We shouldn't have specific dollar amounts in the order. Instead, it should say 55-45, and the dollar amount shouldn't be there. And that, that the court's order was vague about what happens if there is this exact situ situation where there's an excess. But in all those objections, he was also very clear, as I understand the record, to say, but if there's, if there's a loss here, if we dip under the... 70 whatever thousand dollars that the husband's entitled to get, that is clear. I still get the 70 um, some thousand dollars. Is that all a fair statement? And after all those objections, when the court could have said, oh, you're right, uh, I didn't actually intend to order those specific dollar amounts, but nothing changed. Essentially, the court considered all those objections, it would appear, and still entered the order the way that it was. Is that, did I miss anything in that kind of history of what happened here? Judge, you are accurate in that assessment, and I will tell the court I was not the under the counsel below. My, my partner was. And unfortunately, what happened was the original divorce judge retired in the interim. And so they had a second judge trying to figure out, if you will, what had happened. But you raise an ex a perfect point. Mr. Williams, counsel for husband, did raise all of the objections on multiple occasions prior to the entry of the final divorce decree and then tried to include those same objections in the declaratory judgment action as well as raising additional issues that weren't appropriate in a declaratory judgment action. So yes, he raised all those issues and yet the, the court entered the order as it was regardless. I argue, judges, that, that Mr. Mr. Williams raised some issues on appeal that I don't believe were appropriately argued in his brief, and I'll touch on those very briefly. He argues that this was a matter that was more akin to equitable, that there was that the husband should have had a, a payoff of the rent, that this wasn't really about interpretation of a final divorce decree. He argues instead that it should have been an equitable accounting. That was raised on appeal for the first time. That wasn't addressed in the circuit court at all, and so I certainly didn't raise any argument about that in the brief. Additionally, judges, it's interesting to me that he raises the issue that, that the circuit court didn't rule on whether his client was to receive rent proceeds or some sort of rental value, but he didn't notice that for hearing. He didn't raise the issue in the trial court. He included it in a wherefore clause in one of his objections that he did in fact set for hearing for September later this year, that same year in 2022, but then he waived argument. Then he said, never mind, we don't need a hearing on that. So he waived any opportunity to bring that before the circuit court. So we argue that those are misplaced. Those should not be considered by this court as they are raised really for the first time on appeal, the trial court not having the opportunity to address those issues. So for these reasons, we ask that the court affirm the trial court and affirm the declaratory judgment in favor of Ms. Murphy, that she be able to, to keep the proceeds that she received from the sale of the residence. I think importantly, judges, that the what isn't before the court is why there was a difference in the value. And I think the reason the court, I would argue, the reason that didn't come into evidence was because whether it was a dollar, $100,000, or a negative dollar, or negative $100,000 really wasn't the issue. The issue was whether the circuit court, the divorce court, properly or, in fact, reasonably, equitably distributed the marital residence. And it's our position that, in fact, they did. They followed the mandates in Fox versus Fox from this court, the, the mandates in 20-107.3 subsections A and C, and that the duties assigned to Ms. Murphy in the final divorce decree to pay Mr. Murphy his portion, to assume and hold him harmless for the debts associated
associated with the marital residence and then directing her specifically to sell the residence that those duties uh, conferred upon her then the responsibility to take care of and dispose of the marital residence, leaving her then bearing the risk of either an excess or a deficit. Thank you. The proceeding has been a production of Ben Glass Law, a Fairfax, Virginia-based personal injury and long-term disability law firm. For a free evaluation of your claim, visit us at benglasslaw.com or call us at 703-591-9829.